Russia is so hostile to the West, we try to make an attempt at cultural history. Russian hostile propaganda against the West and the democratic world has been getting ever more insane during the past years. But the anti-Western topics in Russian propaganda have deep cultural roots. The opposition to the West has been a recurrent topic in the thinking of key Russian intellectual figures, regardless of their ideology. In this episode, we try to analyze and understand these roots. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Vladimir Yermolko. I'm editor-in-chief of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who is director of international program at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. We devote the majority of your assistance to help people affected by this war and to help Ukrainian defenders. Patreon.com slash Ukraine World. So let's start, uh, let's talk about this, about this remarkable, I would say it anti-Western consensus in the Russian culture, anti-European consensus, which we can trace back to probably 19th century, even earlier. Can we really talk about this? Yeah, I think this is a real, real issue. And uh, well, we'll go back to 19th century, but let's maybe start with what's happening now. For many years already we've been observing Russian TV and Russian propaganda. And uh, I remember starting from 2014 that that was a, a radical change in 2014 at the year when Russia illegally annexed Crimea. And we tried to monitor what was going on in the Ukraine crisis media center. We were monitoring what was going on with Russian propaganda. And at that very moment we noticed that not only they were starting talking about uh, Ukrainian fascists and the uh, ultranationalists, but also at the same time, simultaneously, this propaganda was very closely linked to this anti-Western agenda. So uh, I'm not sure that people in uh, Western countries and fully understand what Russians were talking about. Uh, precisely after 2014, they were uh, talking about decadence in the, in the, in Europe. They were trying to highlight any negative news in a very uh, substantial uh, way. They were talking about unemployment in France. They were talking about homosexuality, one of important issues for their propaganda. They were talking about the absence of political will in the West, uh, degradation and all the synonyms to linked to the, to, to the West. And uh, now, uh, after the full-scale invasion in, in, in Ukraine and after this coalition of the Western partners of Ukraine, more or less, uh, which is, proves more or less solidarity with Ukraine, I think we are, uh, we are entering a new period, a new clash between Russia and Western world when things are becoming more clear because on one hand we understand that Russia is no more trying to uh, to persuade that it's also a kind of 
European country, what it was doing for, for many centuries. So there is no more um, tentatives to show that they are a civilized country or they are, that they are democratic, as, for example, is written in their constitution. So this is a, a real... Um, a real departure, I would say, of Russia away from the Western world. And surely enough, there are some some roots in the past for that. Let's discuss these roots in the past, because um, if we look into Russian cultural and intellectual history, the paradox is that it was in many ways formed with Western ideas, with ideas coming from the West. Uh like in 18th century, Russia was trying to present itself as an enlightened empire. And everybody, like people in, in France, people like Voltaire, was, were uh, really admiring this so-called uh, enlightened empire. But in the end, this whole project uh, ended up with Russia positioning itself as a major anti-European force in the 19th century anti-republican, anti-democratic force when uh, Russia was defining itself as a country against revolution. To use the words of Russian classical poet Fyodor Tuchev who wrote an article in 1848 during the springtime of peoples, he wrote Russia and revolution, la Russie et la révolution, uh, in which he is saying actually the same lines, more or less, that Russian propaganda is saying now, is that there is a big force, anti-religious force, uh, democratic force, anti-systemic for well, not anti-systemic, democratic, let's say, force in 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 Europe. Uh, all the spring times of the people, and then Russia is the only force actually which opposes it, which which suggests it's traditionalist, conservative, religious opposition to to these forces. And in a way, the springtimes of the peoples, which were obviously primarily centered on Central Europe, well, it's something that now the Russian propaganda is calling color revolutions. So color revolutions all around the Russian periphery, in Ukraine, in Moldova, in Georgia, in Kazakhstan, in Armenia, whatever else. And Russia is kind of trying to oppose it, saying it's all, it's it's all, uh, it's 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 all conspiracy from the West. I think one of the one of the important uh, maybe subject to develop here is this the term of imitation. What Russia was doing uh, in link with Europe, with European culture, with European civilization, it was imitating this European civilization. It was not their will to become like European but it was also it was mostly about imitating Europe in order to transform this capacity to imitate into something different if we look back to the 19th century and even for example to a writer like Gogol who was born in Ukraine, as we all remember, who started writing in Ukrainian, but then he switched into Russian. He went to St. Petersburg and became one of the Russian classics. If we read what he's reading, writing, what he was writing in his text, for example, about, about, uh, about the West and about Russia, he was opposing, uh, Europe and Russia as uh, we oppose, uh, health, uh, I mean, illness and health. So all which was Western 
coming from architecture, even like things like architecture for him, was signs of a profound illness. And he was opposing to that what he called Russian sacred architecture, for example. This is a quite striking comparison. So uh, for Russians who were trying to elaborate a kind of an alternative to Western culture after being capable to imitate it, because let's not forget that uh, aristocrats in the 19th century, they were all, they had all this European education that uh, they spoke uh, quite frequently French at home, their kids were speaking French and other European languages. But at the same time, they were trying to know their enemy, you know, know well your enemy just to, to be different. What is, for example, not the case now, because uh, one of the reasons why they are failing the, their war here in Ukraine is that simply they just don't understand who Ukrainians are. So I think in a way, um, this is a major difference. And um, yes, indeed, their idea was to subvert this Western culture and to show that uh, all all these achievements are signs of a profound uh, illness. Yeah, but of course we we can find these you know, elements in every culture. We can find the anti-European elements in German culture, for example, right? Uh, in German conservatism, in German romantics, in uh, in German conservatism of the early 20th century, which which then led to Nazism and, and everything. But but there are there were other trends like German Enlightenment, like Kant, like German science, etc. Right, which show itself rather saw itself rather in the same in the same basket with other European nations. What is strange in Russia is that even the Western ideas coming to Russia uh, at a certain moment turn into their opposites. So I started with this idea of the 18th century Enlightened monarchy. We can also talk about the 19th century and the, and the idea of people, of nation. Actually, the idea of people and nation enters the 19th century as an opposition to monarchies and empires. So nation was against monarchy. Nation was against empire. Empires were multinational. Nations were trying, these are what, ethnic, linguistic communities which tried to uh, free themselves from the empires. And then at a certain moment... Russians have taken this emancipatorial democratic concept of the nation, of the people, and make it in a kind of a, the instrument of the empire, what they called, what Prince Ovarov called Pravoslavia uh, Samodzierzavia Narodnost, orthodoxy, autocracy, and nation. Narodnost can be translated into nation, maybe not. Uh, and uh, the idea was that, yeah, we're building an empire, and finally this empire will encompass, will be kind of a, the same nation, right? The same Russian nation which, which encompasses Ukrainians and Belarusians, which erases the differences. So the, the progressive idea of a nation and democracy coming to this empire is, is turning as a vehicle of the empire against the idea of nation and democracy. But the most paradoxical thing is, I think, uh, 
the the story of the Russian Marxism, because Marxism was let, let's let's locate the big debate in Russia of the 19th century. This is a debate between Zapadniki, the Westernizers, and Slavonophilia, the Slavophiles. And Zapadniki were all about progress, anti-religion, atheism, materialism, and then socialism, Marxism, etc. And uh, Slavonophilia, Slavophiles were all about spirituality, anti-materialism, uh, religion, and at some aspects, pro-monarchy, etc. And and, uh, and the problem is the problem is that the result of this debate in the early 20th century was actually the victory of these westernizers, the so-called westernizers, because Bolsheviks were the heirs of these Zapadniki. And uh, the victory, of the, the profound victory, which was with uh, Bolshevik coup d'etat, actually led to even more anti-Western empire in, in Russia, which was Soviet Union, which was much more anti-Western than, for example, Russian Empire. I mean, during the Russian Empire, during 19th century, people were easily going from Russian Empire everywhere, everywhere they wanted, contrary to the Soviet Union, where it was very difficult even to leave and impossible to get books from the West, except uh, that you're in Moscow and have uh, the special permission, etc., and even if we if we take like the 21st and 20th and 21st century what putin is now doing he is actually saying that his regime it's a genuine democracy so he's taking the ideas of democracy capitalism from the west and he's trying to subvert them abuse them and turn against themselves so what is happening yeah, that's exactly. It's, it's a paradox which is here because, yes, indeed, Marxists were Westerners and communists were Westerners, but but never in the previous uh, century, in the 19th century, Russia wasn't so hostile towards Europe and towards European countries. We are talking about Cold War. We are talking about real war. Then we are talking about Cold War. And then we are talking about this anti-Western ideas and anti-Western propaganda. Coming back to what you described, this clash between Westerners and Slavinophiles, uh, Slavinophili, um, I would say that, yes, indeed, so Slavinophili were always behind these Westerners because in a way uh, there was, uh, I already quoted Gogol and Gogol was uh, in this camp of Slavinophili mostly closer to them stating that these different, these uh, this part of Russia you cannot easily translate into into Western narrative is the most precious thing about Russia. And it explains why even those Russians who were trying to uh, to follow this uh, Western narrative, these Westerners, they were trying what they were really doing. They were not following Marx. They were trying to subvert these ideas, this ideology in order to become different. And exactly what is happening, what was starting to happen in 90s, 1990s when Russia finally, after the clash of uh, Soviet Union, became a so-called independent state and they were recognizing their defeat in a way. They were recognizing their defeat um, uh, face, facing the democratic world. 
uh, Western world, they were trying to follow, first of all, what they were trying to do. They were trying to follow uh, Westerners and Europeans in in their economic model, first of all, and then in this opening to the West, in, we all, all lived through this period of the boom of translations and into Russian. So they were translating everything coming from French philosophy or Spanish authors, Americans and all the stuff. So there was a great opening. But uh, this was an imitation once again. So this was an imitation of this opening. And there was still a kind of moment where... Uh, these uh, tactics of following other becomes the country. So they were trying to move to use um, against the West, in fact, what they were trying to imitate from this West. And so finally, they were, Russia is, what is written in their constitution is that this is a federation, this is a democratic state and uh, the human rights. But what we see, Unfortunately, in the reality, it's a kind of a cynical, and let's maybe talk about Russian cynicism, because this manner to imitate things and to use against uh, people you follow their own arguments, like, for example, they are using now this anti-colonial argument, for example, stating that uh, Russia is on the, on the, on the, on the side of these uh, ancient colonies. This is extremely strange because this is an empire, uh, but they are supporting, at least they pretend to support um, ancient colonies and what's happening in Ukraine when they, for, for example, block uh, Ukrainian force so that Ukraine is not able to to export its grain to to many countries, including African countries. So they're trying to use this anti-colonial argument, and uh, in all that, there's a lot of cynicism. In fact, so these do do it deliberately. In a way, they do understand that they lie and they do understand that they're trying to use the Western weapon against the West. What's exactly they are doing? They are smart enough to learn how this narrative functions, but um, they don't follow the narrative. They're trying to, to once again, to subvert it in, into the opposite. Yeah, but the question is... Uh is it is it really something that we cannot ex- escape uh, whether it will be always like this and uh, these you know patterns of mind patterns of culture will always come back because our when ukrainians are discussing with the western intellectuals journalists you know who are only seeing the problem in the putin's regime and they really think that if the putin's regime fails Everything will be fine and Russia will democratize itself. So they see Putinism as an exception rather than as a kind of anomaly, whereas we Ukrainians tend to see Putinism as a norm of the Russian society, not only the norm in the way that it is autocracy, cruel, etc., but norm, as you say, in a way how it imitates Western culture, how it takes the words coming from the West turns them into their opposites and uh, just um, deprives them of their meaning. Like the words democracy, the words socialism, the words nation, the words enlightenment, they were all taken from the West and deprived of their meaning. 
And my guess is that after Putin's regime, because it will be an end to this regime sooner, sooner or later, what we will see, we'll see another, another move in this story will have a different uh, political elite. And I, my guess is the first, the first phrase would be about once again, about imitating and following the West. They will be trying to, to communicate, to negotiate with the West, to say that everything will be in the past. So Putin was a very evil evil regime and they will be trying to establish a contact with 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 the rest of the world but the second step would be inevitably another try to to reaffirm what they call this Russian specificity uh, specificity Russian uh, own way and uh, inevitably it will lead to another another Um, contradiction and the rather another opposition with the West. So they will try to make trust. So it's also about trust. What what is, is the greatest deception of this uh, century, 21st century, is that um, there were quite a big trust in the West towards contemporary Russia. So even if uh, after the Cold War and after the disappearance of Soviet Union, there were for many decades, they were understanding that you could negotiate with Russia as you negotiated with uh, with Soviet Union and you can buy gas from them, for example. You can, uh, there could be some place for trade, Uh, and etc cetera, etc cetera. and that uh, in a way that Russia been a kind of reliable partner this is about trust but the manner how Russia Russia behaves it's about how to, to to break this trust so first of all the first behavior is to to be in trust with westerners but then they betrayed Right. Yeah, because I think the the betrayal of trust is is a sign of force in this culture, in the in this type of of Russian culture, let's say. So if you really betray the trust, if you don't do what you promised to do, if you lie, if you don't keep your word, that means you are stronger than those people with whom you are in in a, in an agreement. So this this is a kind of a very I would say also. Mm, paradoxical, absurdist, and pervert—I would even say—comprehension of force. Uh, force is something that is not following the rules, but is breaking the rules. That is something that we have already discussed in this podcast. That there is a different uh, attitude of, of Russian history, intellectual history, cultural history towards the, the rules. So it's 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 not going into thinking how rules can limit violence it is rather going to think, thinking how violence can limit or break the rules this we we can we can see it in uh, in the images of russian tsars who in uh, in very often i mean there is a one common trait between these russian dictators from ivan the terrible through peter the first through stalin is that they killed their their children or they they were indifferent to the destiny of their children uh and and the story of putin is also like he's indifferent to the destiny of uh, he is not a man who has having a family mm-hmm. so it's 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 something that you know brings you away from from the family so and of course the the images of raskolnikov who kills in order to break the rules 
rather than following the rules. The image of nihilists of the 19th century, of these terrorists, really the terrorist culture which was developed at the time, not by religious terrorists, but by anti-religious terrorists, the socialist, leftist terrorists. But in a way, we can look at this movement of terror in the Russian Empire, which finally brought up uh, the Bolshevism in the same through the same lens as we see uh, the Islamist terrorists, right, yes, today. Exactly. And what is remarkable is that uh, some things uh, seem to be evident because they are just there on the table, but a lot of people don't just don't, don't mention, don't notice them. For example, when Russia says, uh, for example, uh, that we uh, the West is weak, so the common place for Russians to say that look, uh, the Westerners they are decadent, they are in their decline. Look, their uh, model, their economy, their political system is not functioning properly, so they are weak. So at least at, we we hear a lot uh, of such ideas on the TV, uh, state TV for many decades already, but at the same time, they're saying to their own audience, but look, West is extremely aggressive, NATO is approaching, so they will be able to destroy us, so let's be prepared and let's attack, not to let them attack. So they are uh, telling two contradictory ideas at the same time, because they're saying that the West is weak, but at the same time, they're telling that we, uh, the West is um, is approaching. Look what they t- talk about Ukraine. On one hand, they are talking about for many years already about Ukraine as a failed state, at least starting from 2014. Uh, Ukraine is a failed state, it's a weak state, it's an existing state, it's an existing nation. So I'm just quoting what Putin said about Ukraine quite recently. But at the same time, the propaganda says that Ukrainians are, are extremely uh, strong They and we have to defend uh, our people, they call our people, people in Donbass, from this cruel and extremely powerful Ukrainians so to present aggressors as a victim. So these cont- contradictions are quite clear for, for us, but unfortunately they are not so very much clear for everybody. And mm, this is also about that uh, the the capacity of Russian propaganda to convince quite a big number of people abroad, I mean in the West, of what they're doing is in a way justified when, for example, we are listening, uh, facing questions or doubts about whether it was NATO who provoked Russia in this aggression, aggression of Russia against Ukraine. It's also the same idea. So they are presenting the victim, um, the real victim as an aggressor. And it's, it's, there is no, unfortunately, no clear understanding about that. Yeah, this reversal of the relations between the victim and the aggressor, the victim and the executioner, and this line of action, not only of thinking, but of action, uh, which dates back, I don't know, to Russian Empire, but surely to the Stalinism, where the killers proclaimed themselves as judges. And uh, what were these NKVDs, what were these troikas of NKVDs, who were killing people without any tribunal, without any justice, without any law? They were institutionalized killers. They were killers accepted and promoted by the state. And in order to keep this system, they proclaimed themselves as judges. So people who 
had to be brought to the tribunal, uh, actually privatized, expropriated this tribunal. And the problem is that this is the kind of people which is now ruling Russia because Mr. Putin is, uh, you know, heir of this KGB slash Cheka slash NKVD, people who are just killing millions of people in the 30s and he believes that he's their heir. So this is reversal of this moral and legal categories of the good and evil of the killer and uh, and and the judge and this is all very important yes, but let's would, yes but maybe just a little remark about that so what uh, how to remedy how how to find a way out of of that this is very important um because yes just we have to bring reality back reality to call to call things what they are to call things by their own names and this could be the only way to explain what's going on because Russia uh, by this process of imitation of imitation of western cultures very keen in that very cute very very intelligent in a way in a way they st- they already learned how to play how to not play maybe not the proper world how to play with with western culture they can really speak european language but uh, but but we have to to put it all the way back to reality and to name things what they are and for example to call the war the war for example or genocide is a genocide or whatever so we have to uh, of war crimes we should call them war crimes and um not not let separate the words from actions from deeds from reality what russia is extremely successful at they extremely successful in separating narratives from realities look back to uh, communist uh, times we were talking about about future about this brilliant future about its happiness and but the reality was extremely different so this is a very old habit in in Russia uh, just to to present things not what they are so this is about hypocrisy this is about the lie this is about imitation of things and um and they are quite uh, in their way of thinking they are quite uh, abstract so in a way they are able to to create realities only by talking about them so the way back should be just to unite words and things words or narratives and realities behind these narratives absolutely agree and maybe the last point is that ukrainian culture we talked about this russian culture that this profound trait which is repeating itself all the time that in every idea which is coming from the west and all the russian culture is just built from the ideas coming from the west starting from the orthodox orthodoxy which was coming through kiev from constantinople and was coming uh, from uh, from europe uh, christianity was coming from europe and uh, ending up with marxism capitalism democracy and and, and everything but they are used to oppose the west they are used to uh, to tr- they they are imported to Russia, but then uh, turned into the opposite. And this is the profound, this vicious circle of the Russian culture. Uh, and there is a phrase of Dostoevsky, which I quoted from time to time from his um, 
writer's journal, Dimnik Pisatila, in which he says that, look, even our Westerners, actually, when they come to the West, they come back more anti-Westerners than even the Slavophiles because they they think about the socialist revolution in Russia against this, you know, European bourgeoisie, European bourgeois world. And uh, I think this is a very, very exact remark of Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, who is also the symptom of the Russian disease, not the healer, unfortunately, of, of Russian disease. But uh, But sometimes he... He's quite uh, exact in his formulations. So contrary to Russian culture, I think in Ukraine, of course, we, we also have different trends. But I would say that this idea of Europe was rather something that united different currents of the U- Ukrainian cultural and intellectual history. Because we can, we can look at Shevchenko, we can look at Kotlerayevsky, right? The, 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 the start of the Ukrainian vernacular li- literature, which is actually a remake of the big Roman poem, The Virgil's Aeneid. We can think about Taras Shevchenko, who was actually, in some aspects, we can call him a Slavophile, much more than a westernizer. But he was Slavophile in the way much closer to the Slovak and Czech Slavophiles um, uh, than... Uh, uh, then, for example, the the uh, the, the Russian Slavophiles, and and this his connection to the Slovak and Czech culture and to Polish culture, are even much more important than his connections with Russian culture. It seems to me, at least as important. We can talk about Kulish. We can talk about Drahomanov, the, the founding father of, of of Ukrainian political philosophy, who was, of course much deeper in these European ideas and actually who immigrated from the Russian Empire and was working in Geneva for several decades. But even we can talk about socialism and, uh, well, socialism inside the Soviet Union, people like Khvilovy, who was telling his co-friends from Ukrainian literature that, look, let's take the European examples, not the Russian examples, uh, let's follow these examples. Let's think how the Ukrainian proletariat culture can actually connect Europe and Asia. Let's think how to bring this idea of renaissance, which is European idea, to Asia. And I think this is the profound core of his idea of Asian renaissance. So uh, even even during this time when Soviet Union was conceptualizing itself as a very anti-European, anti-Western. In Ukraine, people were saying, no, 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 we should we should stick to Europe, we should be with Europe, etc. And uh, maybe an important remark here is also about this way to Europe. So the, for Ukraine, it's quite clear that uh, this uh, there are two ways. So either to go with Russia, as they did during Soviet times, and to open, to reopen the West for, for, for yourself through Russian translation, it means when, when you are doing that through Russia, you are already playing this game of imitation. Or another option, as we suggested back in the 1920s, is to go directly, without any Russian translation, directly to the West. And then just to avoid this this uh, temptation of hypocrisy, of deformation, of uh, lo- what we call lost in translation, all this kind of, of this game of imitation game. 
And what I think was happening, really happening now in Ukraine, is that we found a number of more straight bridges to Europe without Russia. And this make it changes everything in a way. So this is not no more talks about European democracy, but it is a real way to European democracy. It's no more talks about European identity, etc., or European literature in Russian translation. But this is Ukrainian trans- translation of the European literature. And in a way, this is a more direct way to, to European family for Ukraine. And this is not about this uh, imitation, deformation, uh, and also this old Russian game, but about the real steps towards Europe for Ukraine, right? Right. And this is a paradox of the Euro- Ukrainian nationalism or the so-called nationalism, which I think so many people in Europe just didn't didn't understand for until maybe the very last moment, is that this nationalism in its majority was very pro-European and was, you know, aligning itself with, with lots of European ideas, the ideas of democracy and etc. And... Uh, so the very this hardcore Ukrainian conservatism, which would be, I mean, religious, Christian, anti-European, anti-liberal, well, we don't have it. We don't have such nationalism as as in Poland, as in Hungary, as in France. We do have it, but not in in the, that much big scale. So this patriotism is actually closely linked. Uh, to the idea of of, of Europe, and uh, and this is, I think, the biggest the biggest paradox and the biggest difference compared to Russia. Yes, because there's nationalism of defense of defense against the empire, against the former empire, which just deprived this country of its own identity and own history and culture for centuries. So Europe is a chance to be yourself. Yes. So this is. This is our vision of this. This is our vision of these relations between Russia and Europe and the West and uh, the difference that Ukraine has in these relations compared to the Russian uh, intellectual and cultural history. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote the majority of your assistance to help Ukrainian defenders and to help people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine. 